Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. This is episode 14, which means it's the penultimate episode of series one. I'm John and with me is Griselda. This week we're going to be thinking about adaptation and whether it's possible to turn a much beloved book into a really good stage play or film. Can it be done? Is it even possible? Also coming up, I went to Paris to interview the French author Edouard Louis. He grew up poor and gay in a rural village in northern France. He had to change his entire identity. And then he wrote an absolutely amazing best-selling book, which isn't too bad for a 24-year-old. And we'll call our colleague on the phone to find out what it's like to take one of the founders of the dating apps Tinder and Bumble on a lunch date. So, John, you and I both love the Elena Ferrante novels, the best-selling quartet, the Neapolitan Quartet. And when we saw that these novels are going to be put on stage at the Rose Theatre in Kingston in London, we were quite intrigued to see how this would work. It kind of got us thinking about adaptations, about when they succeed and when they fail and why so many people do turn novels into plays and into films. Yeah, I mean, you go to the theatre a lot more than me typically, but it's also a huge year again, as it is every year, because Hollywood seems to have lost its imagination, <laughs> to be yeah, another massive year for adaptations in film as well. We have Fifty Shades Darker. Well, that actually has already come out. Dave Eggers' The Circle coming out soon. Julian Barnes' The Sense of an Ending. Uh, all these adaptations on the big screen. So kind of wherever we look, we're looking at adaptations or franchises or... Which adaptations do you, do you think have worked really well? Well, for me, one... One film, one director, one book kind of really encapsulate the trickiness of adaptations, and that is Train Spotting. So, the book by Irvine Welsh is absolutely phenomenal, very funny. Also, it's just like a real kind of like error defining snapshot of, you know, 1990s contemporary Britain. And the original one captured the book in a really magical, imaginative way. The music brought the book to life. It was like, I mean, the soundtrack was absolutely amazing. The new film, however, for me, was kind of tourism of nostalgia for, you know, however long it was, two hours, and it just didn't compensate for the paucity of the plot. So for me, there's an example of, like, a great adaptation of a book and a bad adaptation of a book. It swings both ways, of course, but I think I've probably seen a lot a lot more bad adaptations than good. It's yeah, adaptation can definitely be a hard thing to do. I actually quite liked the second train spotting, but No way. Um, I, I don't I, I agree, it's not a patch on the first. I think I almost enjoyed it for the nostalgia of the first one and because it kept cutting back to the first one and doing that. Oh, quite it was cleverly. so self referential. <laughs> it's like get over yourself, do something different. I also just loved seeing Edinburgh on screen. Not that the the Edinburgh of that screen is the Edinburgh I, I grew up well, yeah, your hometown. <laughs> so you're so, biased. Slightly like different side of Edinburgh. So aside from Trainspotting 2, which you did like, what other adaptations have gone I'm down I'm not well making a you? case for Trainspotting 2 as being a it's great fine. adaptation. It got, it got loads of good reviews, I, actually, didn't I just it? enjoyed watching it. 
No, for me, a, a recent film that I think has, has worked really well is Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship, which is an adaptation of a kind of early and little known Jane Austen epistolary novel called Lady Susan. And they turned this... Um, mm, I'm not this, interested. <laughs> no, 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 it's absolutely great. Kate Beckinsale plays Lady Still Susan. Still not interested. She's this incredibly catty, bitchy, horrible woman. It's a very, like, high camp kind of adaptation that really just gets to the heart of the wit and the kind of claws out attitude and turns Jane Austen into this incredibly kind of fast paced laugh a minute I mean, it's it's a really wonderful well, adaptation. That, that, it's, it, the, the, that is definitely an the adaptation. Cin- the cinema was um, <laughs> the people I watched it with. We were all laughing. It was it was incredible. And I think this is probably a book that's quite little read. So actually, it, it yeah, it it, t- it took a book and gave it a kind of afterlife on screen. Okay, well, you've put forward a persuasive case. Maybe I'll check it out. So today we have with us Alexander Gilmore. He is an FT Weekend writer and a theatre critic for Life and Arts. He's joining us to talk about the Elena Ferrante adaptation, My Brilliant Friend. So, Al, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're here, of course, to talk about Elena Ferrante's four best-selling novels, The Neapolitan Quartet, which have been turned into a play, which we'll discuss. The Neapolitan Quartet was a kind of word-of-mouth hit when it was translated into English in 2013-15. to 15. It's the story of a friendship between Elena, known as Lenu, and Lena over the course of a lifetime from the 1950s to 2010. These are two girls who are growing up in working class Naples against a kind of backdrop of fascism and the rise of feminism. It's a story of friendship that's tough and honest and gritty and quite unlike any other female friendship that I think has been depicted. And of course part of the appeal of the books was the fact that Ferrante kept her real-life identity um, a secret. She writes under a pen name. And last year, the New York Review of Books did a big expose as to who she was, which a lot of people deemed entirely unnecessary, as did I. And actually, the day after she was outed was when the Rose Theatre in Kingston, London, announced that they would be adapting her play. So Ferrante's more or less (laughs) never been out of the news ever since these books started appearing. The adaptation was by April DeAngelis, who's a playwright. Uh, we all went to see it at the weekend. Al, you reviewed it for the FT. What did you think of, of My Brilliant Friend? I thought it half worked. I think it was very well directed by Melly Still. I think it was stylish. It had the right scale and the right sort of dirt that Ferrante describes uh, in her very brilliant novels. But it was too long. It's five hours. It's quite a slog. It, <laughs> It also it, it encom- tried to encompass much too much. There are dozens and dozens of characters. It's over 60 years. I think it's essentially an impossible, sort of thankless task uh, putting <laughs> yeah. it on stage in the first place. Well, at this point, it's worth mentioning that the plays we watched, the adaptation, is an adaptation of all four novels told in two... How long are they? Two and a half hours each? Yeah, so yeah exactly. So when you get to an interval, you've done a book, essentially, yeah. and, you, and you do four <laughs> books over the course of a yeah. day. We did an afternoon and an evening. Yeah, 1,600 pages or so. Yeah, and it feels it feels like 1,600 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so, Al, you felt there was a, there's a difficulty in trying to compress something, trying to put something that is expansive and full of minutiae and full of detail and characters and colour. That just can't translate onto the stage. It can translate, but you have to translate it in a very vigorous way to the point where I think you have to start again. The architecture of a novel, particularly novels like this, which is essentially sort of a great sort of like sweeping saga, mm. does not lend itself naturally to a play which, based on sort of basic practicalities, has to be 
extremely tight and structured. You can't have dozens and dozens of characters with witty, deft little details because they'll be lost on stage. With this, we have far too many characters, far too many scenes, too much exposition, too many stories, and we, we, focus is lost. We have many, many characters, but what's quite interesting is how few actors there are in this yeah, stage was, production. They didn't help by having sort of an actor playing three or four different Yeah, people. I mean, for the first hour and a half, I was quite baffled. Well, I'm not surprised. Yeah, and, and, you, and you've read the book, so, you know, yeah. having not read the book, I think you really would be baffled. Yeah, I mean, the, the admirable Martin Hyder, you know, is playing sort of four different characters in the space of ten minutes, <laughs> from a sort of ten-year-old boy to, um, <laughs> like, a 70-year-old fascist ogre. Um, yeah, of course you're going to be baffled. And then, of course, dramatists use all this doubling up, essentially for financial reasons, but also it can be witty and it can be illuminating and interesting. I think in this case, a few more actors would have helped. There's something interesting here, because this is a first-person novel with a lot of interiority. You're seeing the world through the eyes of a child and then a woman, Elena, the, the same name as the author as well. But that that doesn't really come across on stage. I mean, Al, I think you were saying when we were chatting about this, it feels like a third-person book on stage. You don't get a sense of kind of perspective of, and of the maturing of that perspective. No, exactly. And I think that and it completely shifts the tone of it as well. Uh, Lenu's tone as the narrator in Ferranti's novels is essentially quite sort of guarded. It reflects how she is in the world. She's not the extrovert in the way that Leela, her best friend, is. But here she seems struck me as being sort of over-emphatic and a much sort of bigger, more charismatic personality than she is in the novels and it is perfectly possible to see it on stage through her eyes you you can use more monologues for example you, she can narrate it she can conjure the scenes for the audience but in this case they've decided that essentially you know that they're all equal she's just a lead among other leads well you, you just mentioned tone and this was one of the biggest problems i had with the adaptation we were talking before about kind of the idea of compression when you're compressing 1,600 pages into a play, inevitably so much stuff's going to be lost. And I'm kind of totally cool with that. For me, it was the tone that was quite baffling. A lot of it, there were quite a few kind of slapstick moments in this production. It felt much more comic. Silly it? jokes. Yeah. And, and that's fine, but that is so alien to the tone of the book and the atmosphere the book gives off. And I for me, that was the most jarring aspect of this. Yeah, I felt, I mean, we don't want to give any spoilers here, but the four novels essentially have a kind of tragic arc and a lot of the kind of grief and the dealing with grief that happens in book four, I just didn't feel there was really space for it on on stage, though it wasn't it wasn't really given its, its dues, I don't think. I think it's very tempting if you have five hours of heavy drama to put in silly jokes. It's also, <laughs> it's also extremely easy to do it with all the doubling up. So it seems like this... This adaptation wasn't done in the right way, but I think we've been hinting that adaptations can work. Al, which adaptations have you enjoyed and kind of why do you think some books can be translated onto the stage or can make that leap onto the stage? I don't think it's a question of some books can and some books can't. I think any book could. It's how it's done. A few years ago, the Simon McBurney's Complicite put on The Master and Margarita. It was absolutely fantastic. It was actually rather faithful to Bulgakov's novel, but McBurney's imagination, along with his fantastic company, started again. They created an, a sort of theatrical, visual extravaganza. It was so immensely sort of flamboyant, and they created a work of art entirely in its own right that could live and breathe 
separate to Bulgakov's novel. Well, that, that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about creating something new, because books and theatre are fundamentally very different things. The joys of theatre are communal, you know, it's very dynamic, it's transient, whereas books, you know, it's kind of very personal in your mind. Paul Oster once said, you know, the reader writes the novel. I feel like when theatre does take on an adaptation, when it does something entirely new and different and original, then that's when it can be really wonderful. But when it tries to stay too faithful to the original text, that's when I really see kind of problems Yeah, emerge. I think the kind of slavish adaptation is yeah. definitely a problem. I think one of the things I've noticed in, in adaptations that I have seen, and I've seen a lot of good ones, is they're kind of using the text as just sort of one of many tools. They're using music, they're using lighting, they're using sort of quite interesting theatrical interpretations and often nowadays sort of video work and live filming and the text the original text is is really kind of not being followed in the way that it doesn't feel like a comparable experience to reading the book and it's not trying to be I'm thinking of Tim Minchin's musical Matilda it feels like it's in the spirit of Dahl and the silliness but it's sort of going off in this crazy tangent at well, the same I, time. I think that's a great point because I think actually often musicals work better and they don't have to be as Slavish. I think it's tempting to make a. That's a different thing. A, a novel with its narrative can very easily translate into a ploddy, perfectly competent and comprehensible play. The minute you try and make it into something much more further removed from the from the narrative of the novel, such as a musical or even a piece of dance or a symphony or a, or some mime, then as you say, it, it takes on a, a life of its own, and you start having to draw out the spirit of it. I mean, there are many other musicals which I think have worked much better as musicals from novels rather than plays. Lion Les Miserables, for example, <laughs> or, well, or Oliver. You know, these are, they work very classics. well. Classics, yeah. You're hitting us with the classics now. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned ballet as well because there we're actually moving away from the verbal. I mean, it's an adaptation of a written thing w without using words. John, you recently went to see a ballet adaptation, didn't you? Yeah, a few days ago I went to see Tree of Codes, which is currently on in um, North London. It's an adaptation of an adaptation almost, so it's an entirely different thing from the original. The original was called uh, The Tree of Codes, a 2010 book by Jonathan Safran Foer. And Jonathan Safran Foer had actually taken a book by a writer he really likes, Bruno Schultz. The book's called The Street of Crocodiles, and from that he cut away loads of letters and words and created an entirely new narrative. So then the contemporary choreographer Wayne McGregor took Jonathan Safran Foer's book. He teamed up with the artist Olafur Eliasson and the musician Jamie XX. And they created this entirely different adaptation of an adaptation. It was a piece of dance with incredibly like euphoric, trancey, electronic music. And that was like an amazing thing because it was so far from the original, yet you could still draw parallels with it. And, you know, that kind of lineage of creativity was kind of passed from one text to another to a dance and that was a really cool thing to do. I mean Al, think, thinking about adaptation, do you think it is always second best or can the adaptation ever be better than the original in a sense? It's definitely not always second best. I think adaptation is inevitable and essential. Shakespeare adapted Hollingshead for his and other uh, classical writers as well for his plays. Plots in, in the time of Shakespeare and, and in Jacobean times were you could buy a plot for almost as much as you could buy a completed play. So I think adaptation is essential and will always be there and there's certainly no reason why an adaptation need be inferior to the original thing. For example, Verdi's Othello could be as good as Shakespeare's Othello. Uh, so artists are constantly kind of drawing inspiration from each other and from other sources. Inevitably. And long, long may it continue. And I think with this Ferrante stage adaptation, while it didn't really hit the mark for the three of us, 
there's also this 32 part TV series coming up, which I am really excited about. A 32 part adaptation of the Neapolitan Quartet. Yeah, yeah, of all of the books. And I don't think it's out till early 2018, but it's going to be filmed in Italy. It's going to be in Italian. There are eight episodes of 50 minutes each per book. And, you know, I'm kind of imagining some kind of like Sopranos, Italiano mashup here, which is going to be could potentially be absolutely amazing. Yeah, so, like, so that's an adaptation I'm looking forward to. I think the the jump from, from page to screen, as Al, you alluded to earlier, could be easier. And I agree, John. I think the idea of kicking back and watching a 32-part adaptation of Ferrante is actually... That's it's quite, it's kind of great. I mean, I would yeah, love to do that. that. And I hope yeah. it's really lavish, kind of epic stuff. I think the screen lends itself much better to adapting novels anyway. There's the structure of novels and TV or novels and... Uh, films is much more similar. You have multiple characters, multiple scenes, much shorter scenes. The film can do things quite similar to what a novel can do with just with the plain fact of a close-up. And Al, you're a theatre critic for the paper. Griselda, you go to the theatre loads as well yourself. Why does theatre put on so many adaptations? Is it simply a commercial imperative? I think that's certainly part of it. If you have a very, very popular novel, such as My Brilliant Friend, of course the producers will hope that people will turn up. Likewise, it makes very obvious commercial sense to put Harry Potter in the West End. But I don't think that is the only reason why producers took it. I think there's just a basic dearth of very good plots. I think maybe the public don't maybe underestimate the value of a great plot. And they are very, very difficult to find. Producers are always longing to find new plays, new stories, new plots. It makes perfect sense to look at pre-existing novels. This idea, though, of there not being, or of there being few good plots, I think is something that people are worried about when it comes to adaptation, because there is a sense that perhaps all of these novel adaptations going to theatres is kind of sucking the oxygen from new writing for the theatre, for new plays. So new playwrights will struggle to get their plays on if many of the plays in the West End are Harry Potter, War Horse, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Jane Eyre, Dickens. But this is kind of what I was hinting at, and you two would know much more than me. Theatre in London is not struggling. It's kind of busy. Wherever you know, Whenever I go, it's always absolutely round. But is that because we're seeing these famous existing books no TV shows. no it's not um it'll be because it mainly because many of these plays will have stars in them um i don't think people are going specifically because they love these books and i actually think that the fact that you're seeing all these famous novels is actually creating a false impression that they are that they are sort of like squeezing out all these great playwrights that are just like they can't get their their masterpieces on because <laughs> because you know we, we've gone to like the airport bestseller section and just like, and, and and they've been they've just like muscled Life out muscled out all these young geniuses. Da Vinci Code are they coming now? Is that I think it's actual rubbish. I think if a if you have a young playwright with a brilliant play, it will go on. Okay, guys, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Which books would you like to see adapted for the stage? I thought The Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> yeah, sort of Man, contemporary, there's too much Trump at the moment. A contemporary combination of, sort of Citizen Kane and Doctor Strangelove. And, and since it's, we know... Or it could be a pantomime, save it for Christmas. It could, it could be, be a pantomime. pantomime. It, would, it, would, it could be a very good opera. I, I can't believe I'm hearing this. Well, Alec Baldwin, would, you know, he could have a go. But um, <laughs> No, I mean, I think it would be better if, if he was played by, by a woman... And as we know, it is essentially a work of fiction anyway, so I think that would fit. God, should we pull our resources I into making this happen? don't think I'm going to be seeing that. John, I really struggle with this question. We, we decided yesterday that we would end the podcast by asking which adaptations we'd like, which books we'd like to see on the stage. And I was standing um, in front of my bookshelf this morning and just 
looking through and thinking there's just nothing here I want to see. Yes, I, I did a similar thing and you sort of look at all your books and think, thank God they haven't been made into well, this is what This is what I was doing today. I was like, I don't want that. But I think Milan Kundera famously, he, he said he wrote The Unbearable Lights of being, you know, specifically with the aim that no one would make a film out of it and then they made a very good film out of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Juliette um, But yeah, I, I don't look at these novels praying to see you know, a film with them, partly because I think certainly in the case of Ferranti, it slightly ruins it. <laughs> so my brilliant friend and adaptation of all four books in the Neapolitan Quartet by Elena Ferranti is on at the Rose Theatre in Kingston now. Although we haven't entirely loved it, there have been some quite positive reviews and the play did get a standing ovation at the end so and Al, Al does say it's stylish quote unquote in his no. review so yeah. there, and there are good moments there are good performances it's a stylish it, but flawed it, it, adaptation yeah, it has yeah. energy it has a beautiful set by Sutra Gilmore who not my cousin <laughs> it is it is it has the scale and it has some very fine performances <laughs> so don't be put off by this discussion go see it and um, let us know what you think you can tweet us at FT Life and Arts Our interview this week is with the French writer Edouard Louis. John, you've been raving about his book, The End of Eddie. What attracted you to it in the first place? Yeah, it's actually quite a slight book. It came out when Edouard was just 21. He's now 24. And when it came out, it was a total literary sensation in France. It sold over 300,000 copies in its first year. It's since been translated into 22 languages, including the English version, which has just come out. It's called a novel, but it's all based on fact. And it tells the story of him growing up in a small, very poor working class village in northern France. And basically, Edouard is gay. He grew up in a household with an alcoholic and very aggressive father, also racist, as was his mother. You know, there were holes in the walls, rain was coming in, they had very little food. And the whole book is basically just about how he breaks free of this horrific childhood he has. And that sounds pretty depressing, yeah. It sounds a little bit misery <laughs> memoir, but this is not a misery memoir, right? But no, so one, it's beautifully written, and two, he writes about all these things without any sense of kind of oh, look at me, I'm so hard done by. He, write, he writes about it with real kind of clarity from the perspective of how the working classes are kept down. So what was he like in person? You had lunch with him, right? Yeah, so we met at like half past midday. But um, I mean, he's only 24. And like most 24-year-olds, he had just woken up. He was bleary-eyed. <laughs> he ordered coffee straight away. Like, you know, it was very early for him. Um, you, know, you know, like you just said, like, oh, it sounds like a misery memoir. So I was... Even though it's not... I wasn't like, saying that, but yeah. <laughs> even though the book isn't in itself depressing, like I was thinking like, oh my God, this is going to be relentlessly heavy. heavy. Mm. And in some ways it was, but he is so engaging and such amazing company. We spent kind of like three hours together and it just went like click of a finger. And did he talk about like the French elections and populism and things yeah. like that? I mean, he's kind of interested in all of that stuff. This is he? something which comes up in his book. So the town he grew up in, it's something crazy, like 80% of people in his village vote for uh, Marine Le Pen and the National Front, including his own parents. And, you know, most of the time when you read about people who vote for far-right political parties, it's with a real sense of, like, look at these idiots, blah, blah, blah. But he's the total opposite. He doesn't vote that way at all. He's very left-wing, but he's he kind of writes about the conditions which lead people to vote for people like that. Marine Le Pen's face was plastered everywhere across all the papers when I came out of the Metro, so it was something we kind of had to talk about. 
So The End of Eddie is not a misery memoir, but it is a memoir. And I think this kind of life writing is something that is quite apt for this podcast because we've been talking about Ferrante. We've previously spoken about Knausgaard. This kind of bringing life into fiction and, and the blurriness of those lines is something that we're interested in on this podcast. He's actually often compared to those two writers not only because of how his book became such a literary sensation, but also, yeah, this blending of real life, you know, fact and fiction. And in France, there's a long tradition of this anyway, with autofiction. I mean, it's weird. He like really takes against that. He says everything in his book is absolute fact. He doesn't fabricate memories in the same way Knauskart does. So really, it is, it is an autobiography. So why does he call it a novel? Who knows? <laughs> okay, so here is Edouard Louis speaking in a restaurant in Paris. I faced very different reactions in my family when I published The End of Eddie. My mom went crazy. She did some newspapers, interview, went to TV to say, oh, what my son says is not true. Of course, my mother like resisted the book. My brother was even worse. He came to Paris with a baseball bat to kill me, to show me that he was not violent. And regarding my father, when The End of Eddie came out, I didn't talk with him for five years. He didn't miss me, I didn't miss him. And when the book came out, he, he phoned me af- after five years of silence and told me, oh, I'm so proud of you. I bought 20 copies of the book. I offered it to all of my friends. And it was a lot of money, 20 copies of the book. Like, my father hated books. Books were violent for us. And for the first time of his life, he called me Edouard because in the, in the past, he didn't want to call me Edouard. He wanted to call me Eddie because it was the name. He told me, oh, that's the name I gave you. So that's your name. to change. I thought, okay, this failure saved me. The fact that I didn't fit it in my family, the fact that I wasn't loved, the slack of love in my childhood because I was different, I was so shameful for my family, this thing saved me. And from one day to the other, I I changed everything. I took all of my clothes and I I threw them away. Uh, And with the money I was making and working in a bakery at night, I went to buy new clothes that would look like the life I wanted to have, so my new life, something, in fact, something more bourgeois. Now, I am ashamed because it was violent from, from me to do that. It was a way of telling my family, I am not like you now anymore. And that was very violent. But at the same time, I, I wanted to, to transform, you know, it's important for me the right to change yourself. And I changed everything, my clothes, I changed my name, I went to court to change my first name, then I went to court again to change my family name. I had a surgery for my teeth and for my jaw because we didn't have money to go to the dentist and I had a terrible, terrible teeth, terrible jaw. I learned a way of like talking differently, of laughing differently, because in high school people would mock me because they say that I had a too popular way of laughing. I was, I was laughing like very loudly with very big open mouth. And so I was in front of a mirror and I was thinking, train yourself to laugh differently. So I was <laughs> like this every day. I didn't fit in because I was born an effeminate 
when all my brothers was like kind of fat and I was skinny with a high voice. I would like move my ass when I was walking, you know. It was, as soon as I was born, the war started against me, against what I, what I was. My parents would tell me, why do you do that? Why are you like this? Why do you bring shame on our family? Everybody in the village is saying they are the family with the faggots. Why do you do that to us? And I didn't choose it. I didn't choose to be what I was. I pretended to have a girlfriend. I pretended to, to love soccer. I pretend all these kind of signs, symbols of masculinity. All the innovative is a struggle to be what my father would call normal. When I would talk, my father was low, his eyes down, and my dream was for him to look at me. My dream was not at that time to read Simone de Beauvoir or Marguerite Duras. It came a long time after. But in the same time, when I wrote The End of Eddie, I used this homosexuality of Eddie, of the kid I was, in order to, to challenge the way we talk about this people, about these poor people, about the working class. I use my queerness as a tool to reinterpret the class war, the class struggle, the class exclusion, the class domination. I wanted to write about truth. I wanted to write about real facts because the people of my childhood, me, my father, my sisters, my mother, we would always be considered as fictional people. We didn't exist for the others. When I sent the manuscript of the end of Eddie to a bunch of publishers, a lot of them told me, oh, we, we're not going to publish it because nobody will believe this story. Nobody will believe that this kind of poverty exists. Nobody will uh, believe that this kind of racism exists. My mother would always say, we don't exist for the others. Nobody talk about us. Nobody care about us. And how can they care about us? Because they dismiss us as fictional people. I kept some traces of my childhood. One of these traces that I kept and that I want to keep is the suspicion towards literature. He's saying, be careful. This tool is objectively against us because it never talks about us. When it's talking about us, it's mocking us or talking about us in a fails way. And so I wrote the end of Eddie against literature, against this ideology that would tell me, no, no matter if it's true or not, no. If I want to be someone different, I have to perform it again and again. And by chance, it will become myself. It will become my authenticity. This performance, this almost lie, this role will become what I am inside. And, and so I, I changed absolutely everything.
in this village where I grew up that I described in the Enoveri, all the people were voting for Marine Le Pen, like a lot of them. My brother, my mother, my sisters. My father would, during election time, he would go with my brother when my brother went to vote because my father checked that my brother was actually voting for Marine Le Pen and now she's making more than 50% in the village where I grew up and I promise you that if the people that don't vote would go to vote she would make like 70% for the people of my childhood for my mother, for my father they would say that Marine Le Pen was the only one that talked about them She's the only one who would talk about her lives, who talk about poverty, she would, they would say. So the responsibility is, of course, on the side of the left wing that stopped talking about these people, that stopped talking about poor people, poverty, misery. And so then people are looking for someone that would represent them. That's terrible because Le Pen is lying. She's not for the working class, but they end up believing it. One of the big inequality in the world we live in is that the bourgeoisie is living two times. The bourgeoisie is living the life of their body, the life, the everyday life, when they are together, when they walk, when they talk, when they eat, and they have a second life. They have two lives because they have another life in the media that talk about them, talk about their life. They can read their life in literature. They can see their life on TV, in the arts, in the everywhere. So they have one life in the representation and one life in the body. For the people of my family, in my childhood, we only had one life. We had the life of our body, but it was the only life we had because we were not in the media, we were not in the literature, nobody would talk about them. The politician would not talk about us and would not talk about our lives. And voting Marine Le Pen was a way of, is still a way of trying to have this other life, to have this second life, to live two times. We wanted to live two times as the bourgeoisie do. Five years ago, I moved to Paris. Here in Paris, I met friends that actually became my family. People that I spend time with, that I do everything with. When I'm sick, they take care of me. When they are sick, I take care of them. And plus, they are whole writers. In terms of creation, of literary creation, it's very, very important to create groups, you know, groups of solidarity, groups of creation, groups that people that talk between each other. Like, like Simone de Beauvoir was so powerful also because she was linked to uh, Giacometti, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Violette Le Duc, Jean Genet. And, and there was all these people working, thinking, writing together. It was the same thing with the Nouveau Roman in France, with Samuel Beckett, Marguerite Duras, Nathalie Sarraud. All these people were interacting together. And for me, today, it's very, very important want to create a family because it was too difficult to be a member of my biological family and even more to create an, an intellectual family to have people that I read that I discuss that I see every day this kind of way of writing and thinking collectively is very beautiful and very promising for the future
I write because I talk with Xavier Dolan, with Didier Ribon, with Tasho, with Zaidi Smith, with... I see these people, I talk with them, and that makes me stronger, that makes everybody stronger, I think. Hello, Alice Fishburne. Hi, Alice. It's John from the FT. How's it going? Oh, hi, John. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Just so, finished my lunch. Yeah, tell me about it. So you had lunch with Whitney Wolf. She's only 27, right? I think she's 27, yeah. And she was one of the co-founders at Tinder. And then she left in a swirl of, of allegations and started Bumble, her own dating app. We went to Roka on Charlotte Street. Japanese restaurant, very nice. Aside from my irrational dislike of fish, it was uh, delicious. <laughs> Tell me a bit about what she was like. She was great, actually. We had a, a fun time. I mean, she's very, very young and very, very determined. And uh, Bumble, her dating app, is is founded on the premise of women making the first move. So all of the power is with the girl, which someone I talked to said just meant that men could be lazy. But uh, Whitney does not believe this is the case. <laughs> She thinks it's all about empowering women. And how, how many people use Bumble now? Do we know the figures? Um, I think it's around 12.5 million, although she's going to get me the latest one because it's changing all the time. I think it's got around a million users in the UK. And so according to Whitney Wolf, is dating in the modern world getting easier? Is it, you know, is it easier to find love? I don't think it's getting easier, but I think that she thinks that in a world where we can you know, order food at midnight and order groceries online and everything else we should just as easily be able to do it with love and so her aim is to make that as simple for women as possible and as safe for them as possible by giving them the power uh she had some funny dating tips about how to how to manage your profile pictures and stuff uh she's very anti people taking mirror selfies those have now been banned on the site so if any (laughs) of our listeners are are into mirror selfies i'd advise them against it (laughs) (laughs) and um what's next for whitney wolf well, I think Bumble is her main focus right now. I mean, it seems to be growing. They're moving offices. She was showing me some of the design for the new offices. Very nice uh, honeycomb tiles. And, you know, they're, they're hoping to monetize it more and more and, and keep expanding it, really. Um, so that seems to be her plan. Oh, and she's also getting married to somebody who she met in real life, not using a dating app. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's not good for her brand. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks so much, Alice, and uh, I really look forward to the interview this weekend. Thanks very much, John. All right, bye. See you soon. That's all for this week. You can read Alice Fishburne's Lunch with the FT with Whitney Wolfe and Al Gilmore's review of My Brilliant Friend the Play at ft.com. Next week, in our final episode of Series 1, we'll be talking to one of the rising stars of Nigerian fiction, Ayabami Adebayo, about her debut novel. Please check out our back catalogue. We've talked about the art of internet trolling, whether we're living through an age of narcissism. Uh, We've interviewed people about how they found love in the kitchen, about the beauty of rough lives in South London. So hours and hours and hours you can get stuck into. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sunya. And our music is composed and produced by Fatum. 
You can listen to everything else in all the usual places, including iTunes, Stitcher and Acast, as well as at ft.com slash everything else. Thank you.